Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Monday, September 30th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, how Warren has been doing in the polls, the October DNC debate will be one night only, the precarious position of lower polling candidates, Booker makes his fundraising goal, Gabber changes her position on impeachment, and yet another Texas Republican announces his retirement from the House. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, a look at how Senator Elizabeth Warren has been doing in the polls. This one kind of got lost last week in the shuffle, but this is an ongoing story that really needs to be covered. So here we go. Top story time. The big picture here is that if you look at essentially any polling data, there is a persistent rise for Warren. Now, there are lots of ways to look at polling, and we've discussed some of those on this show at great length. But the simplest and perhaps most important of the polls are national polls and state-by-state polls, with the latter focusing on the earliest voting states. So if the question we're trying to answer is, who might win the primary? Well, in that case, the state-by-state numbers are probably most important. But if we're trying to ask, who does the public think might win the primary, or perhaps who would the public at large support in the primary, that is where the national numbers come in. And the national numbers are clear. Today, looking at The Economist's national poll average, which includes data through September 29th, as I record this, Warren is at 21% nationally. That puts her behind Biden, who has 27%, but puts her ahead of Sanders, who has 16%. The only other candidates who even get a percentage printed in The Economist's graph are Buttigieg at 7% and Harris at 6%. Okay, so those are national numbers, but they also show the trend over time since the beginning of this year. I encourage you to go look at those trends, link in the show notes, because those wavy lines tell a bunch of stories. But I can summarize a few of them by saying Warren is clearly on the rise right now and has been since around March. Biden has been declining since June, and Sanders has also declined since around April. Now, I can't predict that those trends will continue, but if we look at the data so far, that is definitely what has happened. So, long story short, Warren is six points behind Biden and rising. She's five points ahead of Sanders, and both of her top rivals are declining in the polls right now. If you go back to the source data, which The Economist helpfully provides, you see that in many of these national polls, Warren and Biden are either tied or relatively close. They even swap places in some polls with Warren ahead or behind for that first place spot. Now, the varying margins of error mean that Warren and Biden are headed for a tie. And with Biden's numbers dipping and Warren's increasing, well, past that tie, Warren could become the frontrunner. Now, yet another way to look at the numbers is the betting markets. Yes, it is, for some reason, legal to bet on who will become the president of the U.S. or even the nominee of a party or lots of other stuff. By the way, one of my favorite podcasts of all time was based on that premise explicitly. Shout out here to Election Profit Makers, which covered all of this back in 2016. Anyway, what are the betting odds right now? Well, Warren is massively ahead with a 50% shot at the nomination, according to the markets. Behind her at 20% is Biden, and then Yang at 10%, Sanders at 9%, and Buttigieg at 7%, and then everybody else. The other notable move there is that the betting markets have gone up for Warren lately in a way that seems to respond to that consistent upward movement in her polling. Okay, so the next big thing is the state-by-state polls. I'm going to read here from an article in New York Magazine by Eric Levitz. Quote, 
In the early voting states, where each campaign's resources have been concentrated, the picture looks much dimmer for the former vice president. At the start of July, Biden's average support in Iowa was 26%. Today, it's just 20 Warren now leads the field in the Hawkeye state by nearly three points in the Real Clear Politics polling average. And surveys from New Hampshire tell a similar story. As of mid-July, Biden was leading Warren there by an average of 22 points. Now he leads by an average of three. And a Monmouth University poll released this week has Warren ahead of him by two. End quote. So if you keep digging into these state-by-state averages, you will see a mixed story, but one that is certainly encouraging for Warren, especially in the very earliest states. So in Iowa, the first caucus, she's got the lead. I looked through the real clear politics state-by-state averages for Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, California, Texas, and Massachusetts. The long and short of it is she leads in Iowa, but nowhere else. Now, she is very competitive in most of those, and the structure of the Democratic primary is that you get a portion of the delegates from any given state as long as you can get at least 15% of the vote in that state. So given that, you can build a solid mathematical case that Warren and Biden might come out of the early voting states with fairly similar delegate numbers. Of course, we do still have five months to go, and this would be the season for something dramatic to happen. Okay, so the last metric I think is worth examining around Warren is this idea of first and second choice. Meaning, at this stage in the race, a ton of voters are open to multiple candidates. Yes, I know, I've heard from many of y'all who are key supporters of just one, and that's great, but there are a lot of people out there who have a top pick, and then a list of other people who would be just fine by them. And if you add up the first and second choices in many of these contests, most notably a California survey by the LA Times, Warren is often leading those. In that California survey, she actually leads in first place choice and in second place choice, so of course she leads when you add those two numbers together. This kind of showing seems to suggest that she is acceptable to a bunch of voters just in case she ends up being one of the few options presented. Now, I have linked a whole bunch of pieces about Warren's polling in the show notes at the top, and they are worth a read if you're curious about the state of the race from a polling perspective. It looks likely that soon Biden will not be the clear frontrunner he has been so far in this race, and that he'll have serious competition among this top tier of candidates. And right now, although Sanders is still very much in this mix, and by the way, probably about to announce a great fundraising quarter, Warren is Biden's most serious challenger, according to the polling data that I've seen. Next up, we have some more information on the October DNC debate. It's kind of hard to believe that October begins tomorrow, and then the debate itself is precisely two weeks later. Anyway, here is what we know. The DNC emailed the relevant campaigns on Friday. In an article for Politico, Zach Montalero published a portion of that email. Reading here from that, quote, To address several inquiries we have received, we are writing to let you know that, pending a final decision after the certification deadline, it is the intention of the DNC and our media partners to hold the October debate over one night on Tuesday, October 15th. End quote. And Politico reached out for a comment, and the DNC confirmed the memo. So, that's that. In a CNN story by Kyle Blaine, a DNC official gave this statement on background. Quote, Our goal has always been to expand viewership, and we also believe that one night worked well for this last debate. End quote. Translation, hey, it sure was simpler to deal with one night in September, so let's go ahead and do that in October and maybe forever because that's easier. 
Now, technically, they have not said that this means everybody is on stage at the same time. That's probably the case, but maybe not. In theory, you could end up with two sets of six, but I think that would be messier than just putting 12 people all in a row. But just putting this out there, I haven't seen the DNC explicitly say that the candidates will appear together on stage on that one night. Anyway, that's what we know. The debate day is Tuesday, October 15th. Mark your calendars. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. In an article for New York Magazine, Gabriel Debedinetti made the case that many of the lowest polling candidates will have to drop out soon. And specifically, it's not just because today marks the end of Q3, which is a major fundraising moment, but because of how the impeachment stuff last week has dominated media coverage and will likely continue to do so. Let me read from that article. Quote, By Tuesday, when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi formally announced the move, it was clear to aides of most of the 18 at least semi-serious remaining Democratic campaigns that, with the country's attention squarely on Capitol Hill and the White House, they'd suddenly fallen further off the national radar than ever before. By Thursday, that attention was even more intensely focused, and a handful of campaign operatives began ringing internal alarm bells so loudly that their candidates had no choice but to start reckoning with the painful reality that no one cares about them right now. By the end of the week, in campaign offices scattered around the country, senior-level operatives finally sat down in small groups to discuss what the path forward now looks like for their campaigns, or, in some cases, whether they have realistic ones at all. A senior aide to one campaign described his team's Friday gathering as a we're-bleeped-what-do-we-do meeting, end quote, and yes, I, I bleeped that word. So look, the three factors here are fundraising, media coverage, and polling. Arguably, there's a fourth factor, which is the debates, but honestly, all of these factors are intrinsically locked together. If you're not getting media coverage, you're probably not getting much in the way of polling. Same with fundraising. It is difficult to raise money if nobody is talking about what you're doing. And then, if you don't have that polling or that fundraising, you are not on the debate stage, because those are the two things you need to meet the DNC requirements. And that further drives the vicious circle. Reading again from the article, quote, the media, prior to this, was already making it a three-to-five-person race. And now, there's a solar eclipse of a story that will make it really, really difficult to drive any message, says Glenn Kaplan, who was a senior advisor to Kirsten Gillibrand's campaign. 
The entire conversation now is going to be driven around Trump and impeachment, and it's going to be a real challenge for candidates in the bottom five to get coverage, and even those in the top five to drive it on any given day. A senior aide to one candidate still in the race put it a little less delicately. It sucks, actually. Impeachment's going to kill anyone who's not a senator or in the top five. We're bleeped. End quote. And yes, again with the bleeping. So here's the good news. I happen to run a podcast about this election, and I am still interested in the entire field, even the bottom candidates. So if you are one of these campaign staffers talking to New York Magazine about how your candidate can't get any media coverage, you know how to get on this show. You get your candidate on a Skype call with me. We will talk about the issues and you will reach the smartest and most engaged listeners you could ever hope to have. So just saying, call me, tweet at me. My DMs are open. All right. Early this morning, Senator Cory Booker announced on Twitter that his campaign had indeed brought in the $1.7 million it was looking for. In fact, that goal was actually met on Sunday night. That came just in time, as today was his campaign manager's self-imposed deadline. Reading from Booker's tweet, quote, I have some incredible news, team. Last night at 8.16 p.m., we reached our $1.7 million goal. I'm so grateful that at the most critical moment of this campaign, thousands of people in all 50 states came together to give us the boost we needed. You put us back on a trajectory where we know we can be competitive. There's a viable path forward, and I'm staying in this race because I know we can win it. End quote. So it remains to be seen how this story lines up with the previous one. Booker put out his call for money right before the whole big news thing last week, and he did manage to keep raising money throughout that whole mess. So maybe, just maybe, there is a path for people who aren't in the pantheon of the top five. Having said that, he is a sitting senator. And that's one of the other types of candidates that the anonymous staffer felt could remain viable. Oh yeah, and one more note on Booker. On Sunday, he did cross the 165,000 donor threshold, so if he gets two more qualifying polls, he will appear in the November DNC debate. He is already locked in for October. Next up, Representative Tulsi Gabbard was the sole candidate in the Democratic primary field who opposed impeachment as of the last time I did a roundup last week. That has now changed. In a statement released by her congressional office on Friday, Gabbard says she now supports impeachment, but basically wants it to be quick. I think a lot of us share that desire. Reading here from the statement, quote, If we allow the president to abuse his or her power, then our society will rot from top to bottom. We will turn into a banana republic where people in positions of power, from the president all the way down to the traffic cop, will feel it's okay to abuse their power with no consequences. This is not the kind of country that any of us want to see. So, it is unfortunate but necessary that I speak in support of the inquiry into the president's alleged abuse of power in relation to his interactions with Ukraine's leaders. This inquiry must be swift, thorough, and narrowly focused. It cannot be turned into a long, protracted partisan circus that will further divide our country and undermine our democracy. End quote. Last up today, yet another Texas Republican has announced he will not run again for his Senate seat in 2020. This is a serious theme now, folks, as we now have six Republicans from that state alone who are sitting it out for one reason or another in 2020. 
That is out of a total group of 23 House Republicans from that state. So roughly a quarter of them are out. The latest is Mac Thornberry. He has been serving for 13 terms. Now, this seat is not competitive at all, so it's not going to flip anything, but it is remarkable that such a long-serving GOP politician is leaving. Reading from his tweet announcing the news, quote, It has been a great honor to serve the people of the 13th District of Texas as their congressman for the last 25 years. They have given me opportunities to serve the nation in ways I could have never imagined, including as chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. We are reminded, however, that for everything, there is a season, and I believe that the time has come for a change. Therefore, this is my last term in the U.S. House of Representatives. End quote. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Okay, we're back to what I hope is a semi-normal week for the show. You can count on hearing more policy stuff this week. And of course, sorry, it'll be money time pretty soon. I do want to remind you about a Twitter account run by the Washington Post that gives us a look at past polling day by day. And I have linked to that at the bottom of the show notes. Looking at their tweet from this morning, they noted that on this day in 2008, Clinton led the primary field by 18 points. So, you know, this stuff can really change. And by the way, at the same time, the Republican leading that pack was Giuliani by more than five points. So grains of salt all around. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all tomorrow. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.